I'm going to ask you to turn with me now in the Word of God to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. I'm going to go ahead and read uh, verses 1 through 11, but I'll make it very clear at the start. We're just going to work with verse 2 today. I'm going to ask you to stand with me now out of respect for the holy, infallible, inspired, and inerrant word of the living God. Now, after the times and the epochs, brethren, you've no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day uh, would overtake you like a thief. For you're all sons of light and sons of day. We're not of night, nor of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober. Having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for the obtaining of salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us. So that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. I'm pretty certain this morning that none of you have heard the word or the name Erwin Percy. Erwin Percy. Go through your Rolodex of names. It's probably not there. But I'll guarantee you, you've seen his work. You've seen his work. Because, uh, you see, uh, Percy was a 19th century Austrian maker of surgical tools. One of the tools that was needed for the performing of surgery was light. So what he worked with was a known concept which was basically a glass full of water that had um, reflective particles within it. And as much as he tried to perfect that so that it would be a bright and radiant light for surgery, guess what it turned out to be? But you guessed it, a snow globe. You've all seen them. They are usually round, cylindrical, glass-like things. Sometimes they have village scenes or whatever in them and um, full of water. And you know what happens when you shake them. Those flakes and those reflective particles begin to scatter and whirl and give the appearance of a snowstorm inside that globe. That's what people get like when they think about the last days. They get like those flakes and particles inside that snow globe. When people begin to think and to speculate about the end times, their emotions become often shaken. They become disoriented and almost frenzy-like. 
as their thoughts and their emotions and anxieties begin to well up within them and scatter their thoughts. And so, predictably, in times like this, with hillsides burning down, civil unrest unfolding in the streets, a global pandemic occurring, what is it that you're going to see? But headlines like I saw last week of um, a newspaper writer thinking he would never reach for the book of Revelation to understand the times, but he couldn't help it as he recounted the litany of things happening in our world. And uh, I'm sure as you guessed it, he's quoting Christian theologians who are full of predictions that the hour is now. We're in the end times. The last day could come at any moment. It just turns out, as I was surfing the internet, one of the largest mega churches in our area, the pastor, a well-known pastor, recently preached a sermon on being rapture ready because we need to be able to read the times. See that? When people begin to speculate about the end times with the newspaper in one hand and the Bible in the other, it causes frenzy. People are shaken. And it's not just in our age. It goes all the way back to the first century. Paul knew that, and that's precisely why he admonished the Thessalonians to not be quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. See that? It's not just for the 21st century. Christians have long wrestled with this and have become shaken. And so the Apostle Paul says to the church, you are not to be shaken. You are not to be disturbed. You are to be composed. Why? Because we know the truth. Because God's word teaches us about the last day, which we call the day of the Lord, which is referenced here in our text as a day which the Apostle ominously says will come just like a thief in the night. And so today, I uh, realize that we just simply won't have time to cover our text. It's too rich. So what we need to do is take up just a phrase. <laughs> the day of the Lord. And what I want to do, and I, by the way, I, I've been keeping my sights set on this text for quite some time because I probably could produce a stack of articles that have been written over the last several months. And I'm sure you've seen them too. I'm sure you've been a part of the speculation uh, that has been swirling around out there in these very unusual times. And I've been keeping my sights trained on this, and I've been keeping my tongue disciplined because I knew that as we worked our way through the exposition of the Word of God here in 1 Thessalonians, we'd get to this chapter, and we would be able to address from the Word of God how the believer is to discern the times. And so we're going to take time this morning to pick up this little phrase, Day of the Lord, and set it within the context of Scripture and learn what it's all about so that we will, like the Apostle admonishes us to be, not shaken, not disturbed, but thoroughly composed. I'm going to expound this idea in four parts. It's biblical conception, it's essential precursors, it's main elements, and it's ethical call. And this sermon is going to be uh, atypical in the sense that I don't plan on sticking to our text. In fact, I plan on, well, fanning out to the breadth of Scripture to bring all kinds of biblical texts from the Old New Testament 
into our message this morning. And so maybe there'll some be some passage hopping, or maybe you can just listen and follow along and think through these later as, as you're home this Lord's Day and thinking about the Word of God. But one of the things that is essential for us to get right from the start when we think about the last day and the end times is the concept of the day of the Lord. And it's not a New Testament idea. It's an Old Testament idea. In fact, the, the Old Testament is full of the language of the day of the Lord or the day or several different terms or expressions which are used synonymously to refer to this great event. And basically you can break down what it says into two parts. It's a day of judgment and it's a day of blessing. But I'm sure you won't be surprised to know that it says very little about the blessing part. <laughs> In fact, most of what the Old Testament says about the day of the Lord is dark and ominous. So let's just think about some of the things that it says about the day of the Lord. First of all, it's a day of dread. Amos 5.18, Alas, you who are longing for the day of the Lord, for what purpose will the day of the Lord be to you? It will be darkness and not light, as when a man flees from a lion and a bear meets him, or goes home, leans his hand against the wall, and a snake bites him. Will not the day of the Lord be darkness instead of light, even gloom with no brightness in it? Now, I'd have you note, first of all, that this is the very first use of the term day of the Lord in the Old Testament here in Amos. And it is of some interest that he associates with it all kinds of dread. It will be a day of darkness and not light. Very playfully, he speaks of it being like a man fleeing a bear or a lion or leaning up into the wall and only for a, a snake to bite him. That's dread, that's disaster. A day of gloom. All powerful images, and perhaps it sets the tone for subsequent uses. I'll just draw on one of their texts that speaks of dread. It's Zephaniah 1.14. He says, The day of the Lord is coming very quickly. In it, the warrior cries out bitterly. It's a day of wrath, trouble, distress, destruction, desolation, darkness, gloom, clouds, thick darkness. <laughs> I can just stop right there. Just notice the, the heaping up of imagery, which is dreadful. It makes the warrior cry. Trouble, distress, gloom, clouds, thickness. At the end of it, he says that blood will be poured out like dust on the earth. Ominous. Something else that associated with the day of the Lord in the Old Testament is cosmic upheaval. Isaiah 13.10 says, The stars of heaven and the constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark. The moon will not shed its light. Joel 3.14 The day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and the moon grow dark and the stars lose their brightness. Heavens and earth will tremble. Tuck that away because when we come into the New Testament we're going to see the same thing. The day of the Lord is the day of divine anger. Uh, Isaiah 13.9 Behold, the day of the Lord is coming cruel with fury, burning anger. It's a day of vengeance. Jeremiah says this in Jeremiah 46.10 The day belongs to the Lord of hosts, a day of vengeance, so as to avenge himself on his foes. It's a day of judgment. Isaiah 2.12, he says, a day of reckoning. Obadiah 15 says, on this day, the Lord will return on the heads of his enemy what they deserve. It's a day of burning. Malachi chapter 4, verse 1. The day is coming like a burning furnace, and all the arrogant, the every evildoer will be chaff, and they will be set 
ablaze. It's kind of a downer. There's a lot of dark stuff associated with the day of the Lord here. Judgment, fury, rage, anger, vengeance, retribution, cosmic upheaval. That's the dominant note in the Old Testament. There are a couple of texts about blessing, and I'm going to bring them in here because I think it's relevant when we think about it in light of the New Testament text too. One of those is Malachi chapter 4, verse 2, where it says, But for you, and it's speaking about those who are believers in the day of the Lord, for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip like calves from a stall. Images of joy. Images of blessing. The Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. Verse 6 says, He will restore the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. So there's blessing associated with this and we want to think about that as we come to the New Testament. But one of the things now that I want to do, I think it's so important for us, and I will ask you to turn to this text with me. I, I know I sort of rapid-fire machine gun sort of... Uh, spewed out text because we simply don't have time to go. Turn with me though to, to 2 Peter chapter 3 because this is one of those texts that, that picks up the language of the day of the Lord but it adds something to it that I think is very useful when we start to think about the concept of the day of the Lord and the last day and the last times. And uh, You can see for yourself as your Bible is, is open here in verse 10 the the day of the Lord, we're told, will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intensity and the earth and its works will be burned up. And the, the thing I want you to notice, first of all, here is that the terminology, the expression, the day of the Lord. You know, we were able to show you from the Old Testament that there are multiple texts. And, and depending on how you, you think through the expression, there's literally hundreds of texts about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. But here, the Apostle Peter picks up on that very language and he says, there is yet a day of the Lord to come. And so it's not just an Old Testament expression, it is a New Testament expression. But one of the things that is so important to grasp hold of is as we think about what this means for the playing out and the unfolding of the last days or the last time is to see that the day of the Lord is also associated with other terms which mean exactly the same thing. So if your Bible is open, look down with me now. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 4. And you should note that in the prior verse, Peter says in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their lust, saying, where is the promise of his coming? You see, this is a very clear and obvious reference to the coming of Jesus Christ at the end of the age. So Peter introduces his whole discussion of the apocalyptic events and the unveiling of Christ at the end of the age by this particular term, coming of the Lord. And that's important for us to know because all across the New Testament, this particular word, coming, is associated with the bodily return of Christ. Let me give you just a couple of texts. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 says, The Lord will slay with the breath of his mouth and bring to an end by the appearance of his coming. James 5.8 says, You be patient, strengthen your heart, for the 
coming of the Lord is near. 1 John 2.28 Little children abide in him so that when he appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from him in shame at his coming. It is a technical term for the return of Christ at the end of the age. And so when Peter speaks of this problem of of the last day and the coming of the Lord, he begins with that term. But then when you drop down to verse 10, he substitutes in for it what? Not coming, but the day of the Lord. If you drop down to verse 12, you see a different expression. It says, looking for and the hastening of the coming of the day of God. So here in one text, you have the same event referred to under three different expressions. The coming of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and the day of God. Now, let me just um, throw in some more as you look across the New Testament. There are no less than 11 different expressions used to refer to this. The day of the Lord Jesus Christ, the day of Christ, the coming of the Son of Man, the coming of the Lord, that day, last day, the end, day of judgment, the revelation, the appearing, the day of God. Now, you might be scratching your head and seeing what happened to Pastor John. Why are we doing this? Why am I troubling you with um, multiple synonymous references to the day of the Lord? And the answer is because it helps us get a handle on what is so confusing about this idea of the day of the Lord. Because the most popular system of the end times, which is broadcast across the radio, which has been in study Bibles for 200 years, which is virtually known across um, the media today and pop culture, is a system which has it all wrong. You see, one reason why we are able in the midst of pandemics like we're in and all the unrest around us to read newspaper articles about the end times is because people have been confused with a false understanding of it. And one of them is to say that when you see these different terms, they don't all refer to the same sets of prophetic events. You see, they all say there, there's a schedule of events for this coming and then there's, a, there's another thing called... Uh, the day of the Lord over here, a set of events over here, and then there's the return, and there's another set of... And so people are bewildered, and they look for the wrong things. They lack discernment and understanding because they've had a false system of this eschatology drummed into their minds, and it was due to a lack of care and understanding the Word of God. So... The first thing that I just wanted to establish for you so that it be nice and clear to us is that the day of the Lord is an Old Testament concept, but it has many synonymous expressions, but they all refer to the one event of Christ returning at the end of the age. So that brings us into a second point that I think is very important for the purpose of discernment. Because, again, people are always talking about reading the signs of the times, right? If I ask everybody to raise hand, if they've heard people talk about discerning the signs of the times, everybody in here would raise their hands. 
And I bet that there would be massive overlapping similarity about what you heard it meant. But the reality is the Bible is very clear that there are three essential precursors or signs. It may not be what you've heard. And the first is this. The gospel must be preached throughout the world as a testimony. We didn't make that up as Reformed people. Jesus said it himself. Matthew 24, 14, This gospel of the kingdom shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations, and then the end will come. See that? It must be preached as a testimony, and then the end will come. Jesus makes it very clear the fundamental precursor to the return of the Lord are not a bunch of signs like viruses and fires. A fundamental precursor is the preaching of the gospel to the nations as a testimony. So we need to understand what that means. And first of all, it doesn't mean that every single person must first hear the gospel before Christ can return. Because if that were so, it would effectively nullify his return. Think about it. Even the days of the apostle, millions went to their death without ever having heard the gospel yet. So if that's what Jesus meant, it would effectively nullify his return. So we need to ask, what did he mean? And the answer seems to be this, that Jesus, if you read this in view or in connection with the Great Commission, which is the commission to the church to go disciple the nations to Christ, essentially what Jesus is saying is that the gospel must permeate through the church, through the world, as the church takes it out to the nations. That means the nations are in view, and Jesus sets forth nothing less than the goal of the nations having been brought to him, discipled to him, and the gospel preached there. That doesn't mean that everybody in those nations will necessarily have heard, but they will have the access to hear the church will so thoroughly permeate the nations with the preaching of the gospel that this will be able to be said as a testimony. You see, that's what's key in Jesus' statement. It will be preached throughout the earth as a testimony. And that brings us to the third part. Why is Jesus concerned about the gospel permeating the earth, penetrating the nations, and being so thoroughly preached that it will stand as a testimony? And the answer is this. It will add to the judgment of the nations and the people who reject it. We're going to see this in a moment about what happens when Jesus returns, the judgment. And one of the things we're going to see in our text is that Jesus Christ will come again on the day of the Lord to bring judgment on those who refused to hear the gospel and obey it. So Jesus lays this down as a marker. This must happen. It must happen that the gospel penetrates the earth as a testimony so that people will not be able to stand before that great white throne of judgment and say, well, I never knew. What's the second one? It's the rise of the Antichrist, or the man of sin. Turn with me over to 2 Thessalonians 2. As you know, this is... a a very elaborate text. It would be impossible for us to expound it. It's not even my aim to do so. It's simply my aim to show you 
that this must occur. If we're discerning the signs, we're understanding uh, the events associated with the last day, we must understand that the Apostle Paul himself said this. Look at verse 1. We request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord. See, we're talking about the last day. And our gathering to him, that you shall not be quickly shaken from your composure, be disturbed either by a spirit or a message or a letter, as it is from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. You see, some people were already within earshot of the apostles saying, it's right here, we're in the midst of the end times right now. And Paul says this, let no one in any way deceive you, for it will not come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction. Paul makes it very clear. Whatever signs you think you're seeing, this must happen. The son of man must be raised up upon the platform and scene of providence in human history and no one will miss it. You can see that for yourself. You look down to verse 9. We're told about the appearance of his coming. His coming will be accorded with the activity of Satan, with power and signs and false wonders and deception of darkness. It will be so plain, no one will miss it. So that's the second thing. The gospel must be preached throughout as a test, the earth as a testament. Number two, the, the son of man, the, the son of perdition, the Antichrist must be raised up to the stage of history. And then now number three, the spiritual renewal of Israel. And you can turn with me over to Romans chapter 11 to see that for yourself. Again, this is a very intricate text. It's full of many complicating details and, and, um, and difficult points. But what I want to do is jump right into verse 25 and 26 where I think you can see plain enough for yourself that this is indeed the third thing that must occur before Christ returns. And so here you have it in verse 25. I don't want you, brethren, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved just as it is written. So a surface level reading, again, we don't have time to penetrate this in depth and expound it, but a surface level reading will tell you one clear thing. Paul is saying that Israel must be saved. And so he explains how this works out. And there's two words that sort of summarize it, scope and sequence. Scope and sequence. The scope is this. A partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. A partial hardness. And the reason why we say partial hardness is because Paul looks at himself and says, Hey, look, I, I'm a Jew and I believe. Look at the rest of the apostles. They were Jew and they believe. So it's not true that all of Israel, even in his day, had been hardened and, and turned against Christ. But, you know, the thing that broke the apostles' heart is that so many did. It would be only natural that he would address this at some point, or it would be addressed somewhere in the New Testament letters addressed here. And the apostle explains it like this. He says that God has inflicted a partial hardening upon Israel so the fullness of the Gentiles will come in. That's scope. But then notice sequence. Sequence. Because it says here in verse 25, 
a partial hardening has happened to Israel until, until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in and so Israel will be saved. You see, now we're in the sequence. The Lord has his work to do to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth, to bring the Gentiles into the church. A partial hardening will remain by sovereign administration and then God will do his work. And you say, can you be sure of that? And the answer is, yeah, because the Bible told me so. Because you'll notice as the Apostle Paul says this, he concludes his statement in verse 26 with this, just as it is written. This is a New Testament formula used throughout the writings to say whatever follows comes from the Old Testament. In other words, it has the full authority of Scripture. Paul can say exactly what he has said there about the scope and the sequence because he says it's been written this way. I'm not making it up, Paul says. You say, well, how does that play into the events which must happen before Christ returns? And the answer is simple. Because God must fulfill his word. He can't deny himself. God must fulfill his word. And his word of prophecy and promise was simply this, that God would yet unleash massive spiritual renewal upon his people, Israel, and he would bring them to saving grace in Jesus Christ. So there's a prophetic timeline that needs to be followed. God's work must be fulfilled. And so when we think about the day of the Lord and the last times, we need to stop thinking about fires, civil unrest, political upheaval, viruses, pandemics, all of the stuff that gets smuggled into these newspaper articles about the headlines and reading the signs. The, the Bible gives us three very clear signs. The gospel preached throughout the earth is a testimony. The rising up of the medicine in the stage of history. And number three, God doing his work among Israel to renew them. But then we need to think about what actually happens. And I, I think this is important because there's lots of confusion here. And uh, that's one reason why, again, we have a lot of articles written that are full of falsehood and deception and people get worked up about things. So we ask ourselves this morning, we've seen what the day of the Lord is as a concept from the Old Testament and the New Testament. We have seen certain things that must happen before the day of the Lord that is the return of Jesus Christ. And now number three, we say, well, what will happen? What will happen when Christ returns? And there's just a few things that I want to set down for us because the Bible is so plain that at the one coming of Jesus Christ, I keep saying that because there are other systems out there that say there's at least three comings of Jesus. So I got, I got to keep saying this. There is one coming. And that one coming has a set of coordinated events which occur. And the first is resurrection. The first is resurrection. I'm just going to cover two quick texts here. One of them is John 6, 
And here Jesus says in verse 39, It's the will of him who sent me that all he has given me, I will lose nothing, but I will raise it up on the last day. And now, in a series of verses, Jesus continues to repeat that promise, that in the last day, he will raise it up. So Jesus is speaking about his return, which is the last day, which is the day of the Lord, the day of Jesus Christ, the day of wrath, that day. There's all kinds of terms. He said there's over 11 expressions. They all refer to the one event of Christ's return. And Jesus makes it very clear that when he returns the last day, he will raise up those who have come to him by the help of in the sovereign administration of the Father. It's just like we saw last week in our text in 1 Thessalonians 4.16. The Lord will descend with a shout and the dead Christ will rise first. There's another passage. This is um, 1 Corinthians 15.23. Another passage that makes it very clear that this event happens, the resurrection happens on the day of the Lord when Christ returns. And in verse 22, we're told, as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And then Paul spells that out as resurrection. He says in verse 23, each in his own order. Now, I remind you this morning that word order means sequence. Each in their own sequence. And so notice the sequence. The sequence is this. Christ, the first fruits. That's the first step. And second, after that, those who are Christ at his coming. So Paul makes it clear this is inseparably related to the coming of the Lord that he will raise the dead. He's the first fruits, and that's why we have confidence that when our body is placed in the grave, it will be raised in triumph and power and glory because the first fruits is the deposit the down payment, the guarantee that all that it represents will experience exactly what Christ did, raised from the dead. He says that will happen when he comes again at the last day. And I want you to drop down if your Bible is open to 1 Corinthians 15 and see this massively powerful and encouraging statement. Verse 56, the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You see, we are ensured this victory because it's Christ's victory, because he rose from the dead, because he triumphed over death. We are absolutely assured that when he returns, it will be the conquering of death. It will be the conquering of the power of sin. It will be the conquering of the one who held the fallen in his grip. That happens when Christ returns. And then if your Bible is open, will you indulge me? I said look at verse 56 and 57, and now I'm asking you to look at verse 58. Therefore. Therefore. My beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. <laughs> we always do this when we come across therefore. We say, why is the therefore therefore? Paul has just expounded this massive doctrine of the resurrection. 
He concludes it. He punctuates it speaking about the sting of death being defeated, the power of sin being destroyed, the victory over the grave through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he unleashes this admonition upon the church. Therefore, get to work. You see, uh, our doctrine is to be inseparably connected to our living. We've been trying to talk a lot about this lately. Doctrine is not just for the world of ideas and the contemplation of the pious. Doctrine is for every single believer because the life of the believer is to be animated by the truth. And the Apostle Paul is saying here, in view of this massively glorious and wonderful doctrine about the victory and the conquest of Christ over death through resurrection, he says, your life matters right now. He says, instead of being shaken, be steadfast. Instead of being moved and confused, you be firm. Go to work. Everything that you do every day of your life is service to the Lord, and it matters. Everything you do in service to the Lord matters. I love one of the doctrines of the Reformation it's this vocation, not vacation, vocation, calling, work. You see, the Reformation rejected the Roman Catholic medieval concept of life being compartmentalized and segmented and separated between holy work and then just mundane stuff that the rest of people do. And the holy work was obviously just done by the priests. Everybody else was doing inconsequential stuff. The Word of God says, no, if you're a tin knocker, an insulator a dentist, a doctor, a lawyer, a clerk, a salesman, a mother at home caring for children, a secretary, a scribe, a politician, whatever it is. The Reformation and the Bible say very clearly, your work is not in vain because your work is in the Lord. And so what the apostle does is he lays forth the doctrine of the conquest of Christ over death. He says, go to work. People of God, be steadfast, be immovable, be abounding. Doctrine is for life. The other thing that will happen when Jesus Christ returns, this is one of them, resurrection. Turn with me to 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, is judgment. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. I know I'm rushing. I've got so much to get through this morning, and I, I dare not take another sermon to do just this, so bear with me. I, I know it feels like I'm, I'm tugging and I'm pulling, but I, I can't slow down. I can't put cement in my shoes here. I've got to be real careful to get through it because we need to be discerning and wise and strong and firm. But, but you can see here something else that will occur at the day uh, that Christ returns, and it's very obviously judgment. Paul is speaking about that here. Verse 6, After all, it's only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give you relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day. Well, let me just speak uh, linear in my exposition. Let's start with this. The passage speaks of final judgment. You see that in verse 6? Repay. You see that in verse 8? Retribution. You see that again in verse 9? Pay the penalty of eternal destruction. Now, this is what's important about the modifier there, eternal, because it's very clear the Apostle Paul is not here speaking of temporal judgments. You see, the Apostle Paul is not saying, well, God's going to take care of the unbelievers and how they've been harassing the church. He'll give them a flat tire, or, you know, they'll lose their job or whatever, money will be stolen from their bank account. No, he's talking about uh, eternal judgment. He says, they will pay the penalty of eternal destruction. I want you to notice why. And it's very important that we grasp hold of why. Verse 8 dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we need to be very clear that when the Apostle Paul says he's, that Christ will deal out retribution upon those who don't know God, he's not uh, speaking of those who are somehow ignorant. That, that, that would feel unjust to us. What if somebody was to approach the, the throne of God and say, oh, I, I just didn't know. I, if I'd just been given the information, I, I could have made the decision. Well, that's an impossibility because of what Paul says in Romans 1, that all men suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So that would be a lie for anyone to say that. But second of all, go back to what I said about one of the precursors to the end. The gospel must be preached as a testimony. You see, one reason why Jesus Christ would have the church be a missionary agency is not just that we call for the elect and the salvation in Christ, but that also the preached gospel would be a testimony which would heap um, conviction and judgment upon those who didn't obey the gospel, who refused it. You see, the judgment that Christ administers will show that God is just. He's not pouring out punishments on, on poor, weak people who didn't have anything to do with their problem. Notice he's very clear about placing the blame upon those who come under the judgment to those who do not obey the gospel. So when does all this happen? How can I be sure this morning? How can you be sure this morning that this is going to happen on the last day? And the answer is because the apostle is too painfully clear about it in verse 7 when he says, he's going to give relief to you and to us when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with flaming fire with mighty angels. And then this penalty will be paid, he says, when he comes. You see, the day of the Lord is the day of Christ. It's the coming. It's the appearing. It's the revealing. It's the unfolding. It's the day. It's the day of God. Again, all these are the same things referring to the same event and to one single time when Christ returns. And he says, when that happens, 
all the earth will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. It won't be mistaken. Again, I hammer the point because depending on which person you read about this, there are at least two judgments and perhaps more because people aren't reading the Bible carefully. What is the third thing? Come back with me over to 2 Peter chapter 3. I I think it's very important that um, we come back to this because what's the last thing? We said uh, in the Old Testament, there were all those texts about the day of the Lord that were full of dread. And I said, well, there's some that speak about blessing and hope and and promise like calves leaping out of a stall. I love that. Um, But, you know, you, you come here and I, I'll agree that the terminology feels a little heavy, but it's full of hope. As uh, Peter here speaks about renewal, he says in, in verse um, 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. And then verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people... Ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God because of which the heavens will be destroyed and elements with intensity. Notice that he speaks of cosmic renewal. Remember, I showed you those passages about the day of the Lord in the Old Testament but felt like everything was coming undone. The sun, moon, and stars weren't giving their light. The images of cosmic upheaval. Well, here Peter says something's going to happen when Jesus Christ returns, and that is cosmic renewal. In fact, it'll be so perfect and so thorough. You look at verse 13. It says, but according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. People of God, we are not to expect a new earth, literally. We'll be right here. It's a renewed earth purged with fire so that it will be full of righteousness. The curse of sin will be lifted and destroyed and conquered and washed away because of Christ. But it's very clear here that Peter says all of this happens in the day of the Lord in which the day of the Lord in which verse 10 the heavens will pass away. The point in appealing to this text is to say it is in the day of the Lord. When Christ returns in power and glory, personally, visibly, audibly, powerfully, triumphantly, the dead will be raised. The dead will be raised. Judgment will be administered. And the cosmos, the world, the heavens and the earth will be renewed. So what does all this mean for us? I know it's been a, a tour de force and a whirlwind, but come back to our text because this is actually, we'll take just a moment next Lord's Day, Lord willing, we'll dig into this more because even you saw it in Peter's proclamation of the day of the Lord. He says, well, what manner of persons ought we to be then? Again, doctrine connecting to life, and Paul does it here as well. 
he speaks about how we are to act, and he says something there that is very important, which um, impresses upon us the urgency of the calling to act when he describes what the day of the Lord is coming, like a thief in the night. Now, I don't believe that it comes that way for the believer, because we know about it. I think he's speaking about the perspective of the unbeliever. Speaks about readiness, though, doesn't it? You know, imagine if uh, you knew that a thief was going to strike your house. But you also knew that meant that there were a whole series of nights when he wasn't. So you'd leave the front door unlocked and the windows open and you'd sleep like a baby all night. But you knew he was coming back a specific night, and that's the night you'd stay up with a double-barrel shotgun, which is loaded. You see, that's the sense here. The believer knows exactly about this. This is the day of the Lord. We know from the word of God that it has certain precursors. We know things about this day, although we can't know perfectly the day or the hour. We are to know about it and be able to discern the times. But the Apostle Paul takes out that element of contingency, and he says this. He says, at the acceptable time I listened to you, and on the day of salvation I helped you. Behold, now is the acceptable time. Now is the day of salvation. That's 2 Corinthians 6. And you know what he's doing there? He's calling the people who are listening to him preach the gospel to make sure they haven't heard in vain. You see, he calls... The preaching of the word, the day of the preaching of the word is the day of salvation, the acceptable time. And by using this language and imagery of urgency, of now, he is saying to all that come under the earshot of the preached gospel that it is time right now to come to Christ. You see, if you take this idea of the day of salvation, you could say when the Apostle Paul preached, it was the day of salvation in the first century. If you could step back with me into yesterday, you could say of it that Saturday, yesterday, was the day of salvation. We can say right now that today, right now, as the word is being preached, it is the day of salvation. But the Apostle is also saying, we don't know that day ends and when that day ends there's no more opportunity I'm reminded of something that the Heidelberg Catechism says this exposition of the, pre- of the preaching of the word you can go look it up for yourself question 84 but it says as often as often as the word is preached the kingdom of heaven is being open to those who believe. That's for you. Right now, as you sit under the gospel being proclaimed and you hear the gospel being preached to you, it's Jesus Christ on high exercising the keys of the kingdom, opening up its gates wide and calling every single one who believes into the kingdom of God. And so it's always an important time to listen. I know there's so many other things to think about. I know there's so many things to do. 
But there's nothing that's more important in this life than to answering the call to Christ. I can say that to the young people who are listening here this morning. There's nothing more important for you to do than to hear the call of Christ. To run to Jesus Christ as Savior. There's nothing more important than saying, I take all my sins and I'm placing them under the blood of the cross. There's nothing more important than making sure that our feet are standing within Jerusalem. I say it to us all. Because some people who have sat in this room haven't believed. Some people who have sat in this room have decided to turn away. Some people have decided they had things that were more important to do in life than to listen and to believe and to trust in Christ. And to me, that just breaks my heart. And so we can never say when we come to hear the word of Christ preached, well, I've already heard that before. No, the Apostle Paul fills every single hearing of the word of Christ with the utmost of urgency. He says, now is the time. Now. It's right now. Come to him. Believe in him. Trust in him. Be redeemed by him. Be reconciled to God through him. Today is the day of salvation. And that year in our passage, the Apostle Paul says in verse 5 and 6, Having believed, do this. You're sons of the light and the sons of the day. You're not of the night nor of the darkness. So let us not sleep as others do. But be alert and be sober. These are your marching orders for every single day of your life. Be what you are by grace. By grace, you're the sons of the day. By grace, you're the sons of light. By grace, your minds have been illuminated by the Spirit of God. By grace, your hearts have been subdued to Jesus Christ. By grace, you've been redeemed. By grace, you've been reborn and regenerated. By grace, the spirit of, of adoption rests in you. So what do you do in view of that? Well, the apostle is very clear. Let's not sleep. Let's be alert. Let's be sober. This is your calling every single day of your life. Because as the apostle Paul says, you brethren are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief in the night. So what do we do with this instruction about the day of the Lord, what is our response? We know about this day that it's a biblical day. We know about this day that certain things have to happen before it arrives. We know about this day that when it comes, things will happen which are irreversible, resurrection, judgment, and cosmic renewal. We know that it comes unexpectedly. So what do we do in response to all of this? The Apostle Paul made it clear, and I read the text from the start, as he says, let's not be shaken. Let's not be shaken. Let's not be disturbed. Let's not be sign seekers. Let's not be those who look at every single headline that appears and tie it somehow to some so-called prophetically forecast event. 
Let's not be those who are full of frenzy. Let's not be those who are full of anxiety. Let's not be like those who so many times have been fooled and deceived by liars and false prophets. Let's be those who have knowledge. Let's be those who have been instructed in the things of the Lord. Let's be those who know based upon the book, based upon the scripture, the things that are so, and allow those things to cause our minds to be composed. Because if we're that kind of person, if we're that kind of person who has a mind shaped and instructed by the word of God, we are those then who will have confidence and courage and direction. And we will be those who instead of engaging in endless and baseless and foolish speculation, will be those who will be hard at work when he comes. Father, we thank you for the rich teaching of your word and we thank you particularly how it's aimed and shaped to do something to us to deliver us from being shaken and stirred and driven like leaves in the wind it makes us stable it makes us firm it makes us solid it causes our feet to be planted it causes us to be composed it causes us to be instructed in what we ought to believe and what we ought to know and of what we ought to do. Father Almighty, would you take your word this morning and settle and compose and make firm the hearts and minds of your people. And I would pray especially that those who have heard this morning would be those who have made peace with you at the blood of the cross. It's the day of salvation today, Father. Would you make your word penetrate deeply into the hearts of all who hear this, that they may be sure that they have met the Savior Jesus and they know him by faith and that his death is their death to sin and his righteousness is their righteousness, that they have been justified and redeemed and reconciled to God the Father who is in heaven. I pray this in the name of the Savior Jesus. Amen. Amen. Well, we respond.